The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McCrae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today's topic is terrorism and extremism. In late March, Indonesia faced two terror attacks in the space of a week with a husband and wife conducting a suicide bombing against a cathedral in Makassar in South Sulawesi, and a woman attacking Indonesian police headquarters in Jakarta carrying an airsoft gun. Indonesian police described the perpetrators of both attacks as supporters of the Islamic State or ISIS. The group's supporters have been responsible for a string of attacks in Indonesia over the past five years, albeit mostly causing few fatalities, including attacks in Indonesia's two main cities Jakarta and Surabaya, in 2016 and 2018. To discuss these recent attacks, as well as the nature of the terrorist threat in Indonesia and the response of Indonesian authorities, I'm joined today by Sydney Jones, director of the Jakarta-based Institute for the Policy Analysis of Conflict, or IPAC, a world-leading expert on jihadi terrorism in Southeast Asia. Sydney, Thanks so much for joining us once again on Talking Indonesia today. Happy to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Now, could I start with the Makassar bombing that we saw at the end of March? Police have attributed this attack to Jamar Anshur Dallah, the pro-ISIS coalition formed by radical cleric Aman Abdurrahman back in 2014. Is that likely to be accurate, do you think? I think what we have to understand is that the initials JAD or the name JAD, which is the short form of Jama'a and Shadadawla, don't have a meaning any longer because the organization that was founded in Malang in 2015 for a long time hasn't existed as an organization after the wave of arrests that the police made throughout 2017, 18, and 19, what we had was a group of pro-ISIS supporters around the country, some of whom had been members of that coalition, some of whom had not been. And JAD was applied both as a reference to the specific coalition, but also as a generic term for whoever supported the Islamic State. In terms of the Makassar bombings, it's clear that the people involved were ISIS supporters and that they called themselves Jama'a Anshara Daula. Their exact relationship to the coalition founded by Aman Abdurrahman is not clear. So, I mean, where your organization, IPAC, has described JAD as largely dormant, um, seeing an attack attributed to JAD now doesn't mean that this organization is necessarily remobilizing and and returning to violence. The situation is a lot more complicated than that. Yes, it's much more complicated because what we're seeing across the country uh, is the emergence of autonomous cells 
that don't coordinate with one another and don't necessarily communicate with one another. And there is no longer a single Amir for Indonesian supporters of ISIS. In fact, there never was. There was that group in, uh, in East Java calling itself JAD, which did have a national coalition, but even at its height, there were many separate cells that didn't have any connection with the East Java-based group and who acted on their own without reference to any other structure. So it is a very complicated issue. And we saw, for example, in 2020, two attacks on police, one in Karanganyar Solo and one in South Kalimantan. And they called themselves JAD, but it's not clear there was any any relationship to the organization that was inspired by Aman Abdurrahman. With, I guess, unclear organizational links, cells acting autonomously, when we see an attack on a suicide bombing on a church in Makassar uh, just before Easter, is it possible to discern any pattern or strategic logic to the choice of target and the timing? I think the timing is more to do with the approach of Ramadan, the Muslim fasting month, because attacks around the time of Ramadan are seen as holier or more likely to earn religious reward. But there's another factor involved in the Makassar bombs, which is that Lukman and his wife, but Lukman in particular, the bomber, was a follower of a man named Rizaldi. And Rizaldi was killed by the counterterrorism police in an operation in Makassar on January 6th. That suggests that one possible motive for the Makassar bombings could be revenge for Rizaldi's death. And it's also interesting that Rizaldi is the brother of the woman who was part of the couple that did the uh, suicide bombings in Holo in the Southern Philippines in January 2019. And everything about the Makassar Cathedral attack resembles the Holo bombing in the Philippines from the attack on a cathedral on a crowded Sunday and by a husband-wife couple. And you wonder whether they consciously chose a model because of the relationship of Rizaldi to Ulfa, the woman in the holo bombing. That's a really interesting potential link. What would the lead time on a bombing like this attack in Makassar be? Is it something that they could have planned from scratch in the period after the, the death of Rizaldi back in January? Yes, I don't think it takes a long time to plan if they had materials prepared for the bomb. So this could have been prepared months in advance, but it's equally possible that it only took a few weeks to put together. Now, obviously, this, this bombing in Makassar at the Makassar Cathedral caused something around 20 injuries to members of the congregation, members of the public. 
you know, without trivialising those injuries, the only fatalities so far have been the two suicide bombers themselves. And, I mean, this, in broad terms, continues a pattern of, I guess, fairly ineffective attacks by ISIS supporters in Indonesia, where we've seen similar numbers of bombers and their families killed over the past six or seven years as what we've seen police and civilians killed. Is that a fair characterization that these sorts of attacks have perhaps been less effective than their perpetrators would have wanted? And, and why have, if so, why have ISIS supporters struggled so mightily to, to build a capacity similar to, I guess, ISIS in Syria and Iraq or, or even what we've seen in the Philippines where ISIS supporters were able to, to take over a city temporarily? There's no question that Indonesian terrorists as a group are very unprofessional and their attacks tend to be low tech, low casualty and show low competence. Part of the reason is that we're dealing for the most part with terrorists who haven't had any combat experience and no international training. We're working now with a generation that did not take part for the most part in the conflict in Poso or Ambon, the two areas where earlier generations of terrorists got their experience. And none of them were involved in Afghanistan because that was an earlier generation or in training in Mindanao. Indeed, when one of the JAD people went to Mindanao to buy weapons in 2015 and early 2016, one of his concerns was even if he got all those weapons back to Indonesia, who was going to be able to use them? Because for the most part, none of these people who are would-be terrorists have had any training in how to shoot real guns. Sure. No, that's, a, that's extraordinary. Um... I mean, is there, is there any pathway for these organizations for terrorists in Indonesia to attain a more effective capacity in the short term, do you think? Well, there were two possibilities. One was to get to Syria, but of course, most of the people who went to Syria didn't intend to return. They intended to join Islamic State and stay and fight and wait for the forces of the Imam Mahdi, the Islamic Messiah, to appear. We also had some people interested in going to the Philippines for training, but it became harder and harder to do that without getting caught. So there were... 40 Indonesians about who tried to get to the Philippines at the height of the Marawi siege, since that had captured their imagination as a local jihad that had taken over a complete city, as you noted. But most of the people were stopped before they could get to the Philippines. And those that did make it were quickly arrested or were killed in the battle. So there weren't very many people left to train. And then in terms of Syria, the only group that consciously tried to send people to Syria for military training and then return to Indonesia was Jamaa Islamiyah. And it was actually the return of some of the trained fighters from J.I. 
that triggered these waves of arrests by the police in 2019 and 2020, as well as the early part of this year. So in the last six months, we've had more than 100 J.I. men arrested, some of them with links to Syria. But the difference with ISIS is that J.I. had no immediate intention of undertaking terrorist acts in Indonesia because Indonesia wasn't under attack by Islam's enemies. You've mentioned the J.I. trainees returning and attracting police attention. On the ISIS side, where we've seen at least deportees, if not, I'm not sure if there have also been returnees, none of these deportees or returnees on the ISIS side picked up substantial combat experience or skills uh, in their attempts to, to reach the battlefields in Iraq and Syria? So of the deportees, there are 556 people mostly caught in Turkey before they could cross over, and none of them had a chance to do any training. If we're talking about the people who did cross over and managed to find their way back, many of them were disillusioned precisely because they didn't get to the front and were relegated to minor roles in a way that in substantially disillusioned them about ISIS. So we are dealing with people who came back with significant skills. No, it sounds like Indonesia has been quite fortunate then in that respect. But I mean, uh, even if it hasn't created uh, a cater of trained potential terrorists, uh, has the Syria conflict nevertheless created other vulnerabilities that create an ongoing danger of terrorist violence in Indonesia? Yes, absolutely. Because if you recall, there was an instruction from the then spokesperson for ISIS in around late 2016 or early 2017, which basically said, if you can't join us, wage war at home or wage war wherever you can. And every single ISIS member arrested in Indonesia has been able to recite that instruction and believes that by virtue of his or her oath of loyalty to the leader of ISIS, they are obliged to obey that instruction. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen some of these small-scale, completely unprofessional attacks, because the perpetrators believe they are carrying out ISIS instruction. Would that likely be the background to the other recent attack we've seen uh, where you know, we had a woman go to police headquarters carrying a, an airsoft gun, seek to make her way in, and, and ultimately she was fatally shot by police there? The police have attributed this as a lone wolf attack inspired by ISIS. Could that have followed the sort of pathway that, that you're describing there? Yes, it's possible. We don't know precisely at this stage what her motivation could be, but that's one of the legacies of ISIS. There's another one, though, and I think that even if we see support for ISIS decline, and we are seeing a decline among some of the convicted terrorist prisoners, for example, some of whom have revoked their pledge of loyalty to ISIS. But one of the other legacies of ISIS is that it may have left behind a more brutal vision of an Islamic state. We've seen many groups in Indonesia from the 1950s onwards 
working for the implementation of an Islamic state and sometimes fighting for an Islamic state. There's a movement called Darul Islam or the Islamic State of Indonesia, sometimes abbreviated D-I-N-I-I. And that group is one that long preceded ISIS and will long outlast it. But I think ISIS may have colored the way that these supporters of an Islamic state see the ideal that they're fighting for in a way that is much harsher, much more ready to brand fellow Muslims as infidels if they don't follow the precise teachings of the group concerned. So whatever happens to ISIS, I think it's left behind some very troubling ideas. Sure. And this is dangerous because it broadens the potential range of targets? Yes, I think it it broadens the potential range of targets and it feeds into the idea that only a very exclusivist vision of the truth is possible. And I mean, you've mentioned already that most of the people subscribing to this vision in Indonesia at present don't have combat experience. If we look at the attack on the police headquarters and assume that that was inspired by ISIS, although, as you say, it's, it's too early to know. I mean, another feature of that was not having a... I guess, factory standard firearm to use. And, and I've seen in, in IPAC's reportage on the East Indonesia Mujahideen, another of the very active pro-ISIS groups in Indonesia, that they also struggle mightily to maintain a supply of firearms. Um, has that been another constraint on the severity of terrorist attacks in Indonesia? Is it difficult to get firearms at present within Indonesia? It's relatively difficult to get firearms especially compared to a place like the Philippines where everybody has a gun. But I think that it still seems to be the case that terrorists would like to be able to use bombs. And there's plenty of instructional material available on the internet about how to construct bombs. So you don't really need the guns to carry out an attack. Also, as we've seen in other countries, there has been very effective use made of other kinds of weapons, such as vehicles ramming into crowded areas. And we're fortunate in that that hasn't been a tactic used by terrorists, even though if their aim is to get mass killings, that's going to be more effective than these poorly constructed bombs or a knife or an air gun. Do you have a sense of why we haven't seen those sort of tactics in Indonesia today? I think that there's a concern about collateral damage, i.e. Muslim casualties. Sure, sure. Now, another feature of these march attacks is that both involved women as perpetrators, as the sole perpetrator at police headquarters and, and as one member of a couple conducting a suicide bombing in the Makassar Cathedral attack. Is this something we're seeing more broadly in Indonesia, an increasing role for women as perpetrators? We're certainly seeing a greater role in Indonesia, although I think it's a worldwide phenomenon. And I think it's come about 
in part because of the propaganda that was aimed at women from ISIS, although ISIS took a very traditional approach to the role of women, seeing them mostly as wives, mothers, and teachers of small children, with some exceptions made for medical assistance on the battlefront. But they certainly did not welcome the idea of women as combatants. However, partly because of the propaganda and partly because just the spread of social media, women began to talk among themselves about their desire for a greater role. And we began to see around the world women looking to join ISIS or to get to Syria in some capacity or to help out the struggle, not just as helpmates of their husbands, but as active fighters. Has that change in role, um, that aspiration for a change in role, been something that has been readily accepted within jihadi networks? Has it been a source of debate? How has that played out? Yes, it's very much been a source of debate. For example, Jama Islamiyah has not changed its very traditional approach and does not welcome women as members and confines women to a very traditional role, even though from the very beginning, J.I. women took a very active role in terms of fundraising, in terms of recruitment at Pisantrins for girls, that is Islamic boarding schools for girls and so on. But I think that the more active role of women as combatants is something that has been almost an inevitable consequence of sharing information in chat groups and online. And it enables women to discuss and build solidarity among themselves in a way that reinforces these aspirations. It sounds like it's perhaps also enabled by the the more fragmented cell-like structure with, with cells operating independently. That presumably must open more opportunities for for women to become involved in attacks. Yeah, I think it's an interesting statistic that prior to ISIS, there was a grand total of four women who had been arrested on terrorism charges. And the number of women currently arrested on terrorism charges is 51. It's a huge change. Yeah, quite a quite a dramatic increase. I mean, that sounds like that would pose a very different threat to counterterrorism authorities. Are they properly set up to, I guess, detect and prevent and investigate the new threat that women are posing? I think they still have an inadequate number of women in the key agencies involved. The police still have less than 10% women. And I think Densus Lapandalapan, that is Detachment 88, the counterterrorism unit of the police, while they've made an effort to hire more women, I think their numbers are still under 10%. So I don't think there's an adequate capacity to monitor women's networks, understand women's business linkages, penetrate the internet effectively, although the police capacity to monitor social media communications has shot upwards in recent years. 
Sure, sure. Well, I mean, perhaps these these latest two attacks will will provide further impetus on that front. So, moving on, uh, you've mentioned a number of times Jamaa Islamia during this conversation as sending members to train in Syria and consequently attracting the attention of, of Indonesian police. And indeed, we've seen a steady stream of arrests of JI members in Indonesia just before the March attacks and indeed last year, where, where late last year we saw both the Bali bombing fugitive Zulkarnain uh, as well as Taufik Bulaga, a uh, JI bomb maker from Poso who had been on the run for, uh, in the order of 15 years, both being arrested. I guess, you know, the, the conclusion on JI had been that it had turned away from violence in Indonesia to, to I guess, concentrate on consolidating its strength. Is it now re-emerging as a potential source of terrorist violence in Indonesia? I think the police have been concerned that it could emerge as another source of violence in two ways. One is that with all of these people trained in Syria and the numbers ranged from 60 to 80, I think, with 60 having come back to Indonesia and an unknown number, but 20 or 30 still stranded or still in Syria, unable to return. And I think the concern was that even if the leadership of JI was still restraining its members from planning terrorist attacks, there could always be the emergence of a militant splinter because that's the history of JI and its various associated groups. We had a splinter led by a Malaysian named Nordin Top be responsible for attacks on luxury hotels in Jakarta in 2009 and for the second Bali attack in 2005. And that was also against the wishes of the then JI leadership but there was nothing they did to prevent it. Whether they could have done something to prevent it is another question. But I think the police are worried that a splinter group composed of young militants with Syria training could possibly emerge. A second issue is that JI does have a plan for an eventual takeover of Indonesia, at which point it will want to use its trained forces as an army. And what would trigger the move toward actually trying to achieve a takeover is unclear. It's certainly not anything imminent. But I think because of the uncertainty of that, that's another reason why the police are concerned. Of course, if you're setting up a militant force that has serious military training. That's not something that any government would countenance. No, of course not. And I mean, when you highlight those two scenarios, a militant splinter or this longer term plan to establish an Islamic state, which would require a military campaign, how much of a setback are the arrests of people returning from Syria having trained there? I mean, what sort of prison terms are they likely to serve? And are they then able to, to, I guess, rejoin their organization and pursue potentially a path of violence after finishing those prison sentences? I think there 
is a danger in ever underestimating J.I. J.I. has a capacity to survive and rebuild and regenerate that we've seen in, at several points from its creation in 1993. So I would never rule J.I. out, and I would never expect that it would be eradicated. But it has gone through various periods of dormancy, and I would expect that we would be facing another one of those periods now for the next four or five years. But there will be ongoing efforts to build the organization the J.I. network of schools, of boarding schools, is still very much alive. And that's been a traditional source of recruitment. The kind of social ties within the community ensures that it will continue to survive even with all of these arrests. I think one of the issues that we'll be looking at is what happens in prison? Because even though many of the most senior JI people are now detained in single cell facilities, so they don't have the ability to influence other members, some of the other prisoners will be detained in places where they might have more opportunity to connect with prisoners. And there is always an opportunity in those cases for recruitment. It's worth noting that in the past, the police and prison authorities have actually made use of senior J.I. people to teach against ISIS because J.I. As, as an organization is very much opposed to ISIS teachings and so some senior leaders like Abu Dujana, who was arrested in 2007, were actively employed by prison authorities to persuade pro-ISIS people to pull back from their teachings. So it's going to be interesting to see what the relationship is like between some of the J.I. prisoners now and prison authorities. So, I mean, before the return of these trainees from Syria, J.I. was seen as a less dangerous organization than pro-ISIS organizations by Indonesian authorities? Yes, and also it produced anti-ISIS materials, which were circulated deliberately by prison authorities so that people who were supporting JAD and other organizations could read them. That's fascinating. I mean, over you, you've mentioned there has been a change in the way that prisons are, are managed, more prisoners in single cell prisons. Um, is that a significant improvement? Because, uh, you know, certainly through IPAC's reports, we, we've seen sort of reports previously of planning of attacks from within prison, uh, distribution of, of sermons and ideological materials. Uh, Indonesian authorities now able to prevent that? It's been much more effective to have the single cells, although there is a concern that because so many people are now restricted from communication, restricted from having visitors, and restricted from interacting with each other, that it's basically 
tantamount to long-term solitary confinement in a way that could have serious mental health implications, but nobody's worried about that for the moment. And it's also possible to move out of the most rigid confinement by cooperating with authorities so that those who cooperate can get longer visits from their family and move to a, a progressively less rigid environment. But it's still something that's a big question mark because in the past, we haven't seen prisons be that much of a center for radicalization. Whether or not they could become this is a question mark. At the same time, however, we're seeing some very good efforts inside prison to change the attitudes of some of the most hardcore prisoners. And one of those who is now very cooperative with prison authorities and police is Royce, who was the field co coordinator in the Australian embassy bombing of 2004 and is currently on death row, although there's no idea of when he would ever be executed and one hopes no one gets executed in Indonesia or anywhere else. But nevertheless, he has changed his outlook and become much more moderate in his views. How do police or prison authorities achieve that, bringing someone who's been as deeply involved in terrorism as Royce to a, to a different perspective? It's through the use of very carefully selected individuals who are obviously pious themselves and who develop a personal bond with the individuals concerned. It's a real long-term mentoring process. It sounds like a, a tremendous challenge for Indonesian authorities to deal first with the ongoing cohort of new terrorist potential perpetrators or suspects, uh, the ones they have in prison. You've mentioned in the case of JI, those uh, sort of interventions by the authorities are likely to drive the organization into a period of dormancy. Is that a broader pattern? I, I mean, when we broaden the lens to the pro-ISIS organizations, is there a sense that the interventions Indonesian authorities are, are taking are getting on top of the threat, or, or is that simply not the case? The problem with ISIS is that it doesn't function as a single organization. JI was very clearly an organized structure with a chain of command, a long period of indoctrination for members, and a very clear understanding of roles and tasks by different parts of the organization. It really was like a giant bureaucracy in a way. ISIS is very different, and we will still see individuals or small groups decide to carry out attacks on their own without reference to any structure. And so even though we've had huge numbers of arrests, especially under the 2018 counterterrorism law, which was a strengthened law, we will continue to see people act on their own. And also many of the people arrested are not getting long sentences. They're getting two and three year sentences, meaning that the prisons for some people are like a revolving door. On the subject of people being released, as well as people who are serving these short sentences, certainly internationally, we've seen a, a lot of reportage about the release of Abu Bakr Basir, a, a very prominent prisoner within the Indonesian prison system. Uh, does the 
release of those high profile prisoners significantly increase the threat of terrorism or is it more these people who are coming in for short sentences and, and then, you know, as you say, going back out the revolving door? I think it's the less well-known people that pose more of a threat. There's no way that Ba'ashir is not going to be monitored every second. And as well, he's not someone who has ever provided a lot of serious ideological material to organizations, unlike Amman Abdurrahman, whose writings are still used in virtually every religious discussion group of a pro-ISIS nature across the country. There aren't writings by Ba'ashir that are used in extremist discussion groups in the same way. So I don't think his influence is going to be anywhere near what people fear. Now, finally, I mean, you've mentioned this issue of potential long-term mental health impacts on, on prisoners held for long periods in single cells without communication with others. There's also you know, been this ongoing issue around the use of lethal force by police in counterterrorism operations. You know, we've seen calls in the uh, National News Weekly tempo this week for greater accountability and scrutiny on police counterterrorism operations in Indonesia. Do you think there does need to be more scrutiny on the way that Indonesian police and Indonesian authorities more broadly are combating terrorism? I think it's always useful to have better accountability for security forces, whether you're talking about counterterrorism police in Java or military operations in Papua. I think it's always useful to get independent outsiders to evaluate lessons learned and whether operations that involve the use of lethal force could have been done another way or could be prevented in the future. Sure, sure. Now, Sydney, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your insights with Talking Indonesia today. It's been great. Okay. Thank you. That was Sydney Jones, director of the Jakarta-based Institute for the Policy Analysis of Conflict, or IPAC. Talk Indonesia returns on 22 April with my co-host, Dr. Anissa Beta. Until then, as always, you can catch up on all 157 episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talk Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.